Nine individuals of the Mitchell Legion baseball team are charged in connection with a sexual assault case. We'll bring you context for the conversation. From SDPB Radio, it's Friday, August 4th, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, SDPB's Lee Strubinger talks with the Pennington County State's Attorney, and then we talk with some experts about how to handle this conversation around your kitchen table. Then an airport strives to assist people with disabilities fly more comfortably. We'll also explore disability rights in the workplace, how to talk to your boss about accommodations. Plus, CJ Keene explores county resources during tourism season, and we preview a festival of African culture in Sioux Falls that's coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Nine individuals of the Mitchell Legion baseball team are being charged in connection with a sexual assault case. At least six are facing felony charges for second-degree rape as well as aiding and abetting. As in all criminal cases, there is a presumption of innocence until guilt is proven. SDPB's Lee Strubinger spoke with Pennington County State's Attorney Lara Retzel. She is lead prosecutor on the case. She explained where the case is at now. A note to listeners, this story contains references to violence and sexual assault. There are two named victims in this case that reported an incident that happened in Rapid City, one incident to each of them, that the Department of Criminal Investigations conducted a very thorough, very well done investigation, discovered that the jurisdiction was Rapid City. That's when I became involved. And um, after speaking to the two victims, it led to the indictments that you see that have come down today. So although the case has been characterized as a hazing or an initiation, um, that's not what the case is at all. It's disturbing to me that it's being characterized that way. It's a sexual assault case. And we need to stop calling it anything other than that. When you hear hazing, you think, you know, boys will be boys, but that you're saying this is much more serious than that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, in America, we have this mentality of testosterone, that there's going to be a degree of hazing or initiation whenever groups of men come together for sports or in fraternities. And to me, that conjures up images of drinking too much beer or um, shaving heads or legs or having a situation like that. So to use those terms, it just so minimizes and undermines the situation that we have here, which is a very serious criminal offense involving two sexual assaults. And not just, I mean, not just sexual assault, but a forcible sexual assault. Yeah. How do these generally move along? What kind of timeline are we thinking here? So these cases will be complicated by the fact that several of these young men are juveniles, meaning they're under the age of 18. So because of their age being over 16 and the fact that it is a very serious felony offense, those cases start in adult court. But those men will have the opportunity to have their cases considered for transfer back into juvenile court. And th the same thing could happen with the three that have been charged as juveniles. So there's a total of nine involved people in Pennington County. Three have been charged as juveniles. Those cases could be considered for a motion to transfer into adult court. So there's a lot of initial proceedings 
that will determine where these cases are going to be heard before we can really get into the merits of the allegations. So where a typical criminal case like this will take six to 12 months, I think we should expect as a community for it to take longer, given the fact that we're gonna have the interplay of juvenile law and adult law. Um, I guess how were investigators first made aware of this? The complaining parties, the victims in this case, initially made reports to the Legion baseball team and the Legion baseball team board. Um, those complaints eventually um, made their way to law enforcement and that's how law enforcement became involved. Um, the victims went directly to law enforcement um, in order to have their complaints taken seriously, and of course they were. Is it possible that there were similar incidents that happened with this team prior, or is this believed to kind of be an isolated event? I'm glad you asked that question because it's something that I was going to volunteer if you didn't. I, I have good reason to believe that this is a pattern of behavior that has gone on for a number of years. I believe at least five years. And if there are other young men that have been involved in the Mitchell baseball team or any situation where they've been a victim of sexual assault, I think there's a particular onus for young male victims to not come forward. Um, they don't feel like they'll be believed. They don't feel like the system is, uh, is welcoming. Uh, it's, it's a scary thing to report, especially for young men. It just is. I, I do have reason to believe this is a culture, a continuing pattern of behavior um, with that organization. And I, I truly hope that if anyone else has been a victim, this is the time now to come forward and, and have all of that come to light and addressed so that this can stop once and for all, that this, this culture um, ends with this case. Will each person, I guess, be tried individually, or will it be kind of like a group trial? How, how will this kind of go down? Right. So right now, the, the six that are charged in adult court are charged together, meaning that as it stands today, they will all be tried in one joint trial. Now, they certainly will have the opportunity under the law to ask the court to separate them out and have their, it's called bifurcation, to have their cases bifurcated for individual trials. Um, that's something that ultimately a court will have to decide. But as it stands today, it will be one case. Okay. Have you ever seen anything like this before? I've heard of things like this in the media on a national level for years. I've not personally encountered a situation like this that was characterized as a, a hazing or an initiation type ritual. It was very um, upsetting to know that something like that is allegedly happening in our South Dakota community. It makes me wonder how much more of this exists that is kept under wraps um, and protected by groups of people that are tolerating um, behaviors that are really damaging long-term to the victims. Uh, no, the answer is no. I've, I've never seen a sexual assault like this characterized as an initiation. And I, I hope as far as our state goes that it ends with this case. If anyone else has been the, the victim of a sexual assault in, in any capacity, it's important that, um, that you involve law enforcement um, or at a minimum make sure that you're getting the, the mental health support that you need. There's a real possibility that people 
um, potentially even accused in this case are actually victims their, themselves. Um, if this is a pattern that's been going on for years, you know, we, we know that sometimes people that have been victimized later become perpetrators um, for a million psychological reasons. And that cycle will continue if people aren't addressing that trauma that's happened to them. So I would, I would really like to shed light on this whole situation. That's why I'm talking about it. And I, I hope that people take this terrible situation as an opportunity to pull it out into the light, deal with whatever has happened in the past, and so we can all, as a state, move forward. That was a very heavy interview, and if you don't know where to start processing that story, let's begin here. Let's have a conversation that highlights how to talk about sexual assault prevention and reporting with your kids and your teenagers. Kelly Wharton is a certified nurse practitioner at Child's Voice. That's a children's advocacy center at Sanford Health and is with us on the phone now. Kelly Wharton, thanks so much for stopping in at the last minute. We appreciate uh, your time. Absolutely. Happy to be here this morning. So we're especially going to talk today about young male, male victims and how difficult it can be to have this conversation with your sons. Tell me a little bit about what you know about the myths that these sorts of things don't happen to boys. Absolutely. So, um, you know, we know in the work that we do that sexual abuse and sexual assault can happen to anyone, um, no matter gender. And so we see kids of both genders all the time. And I believe, you know, in listening to the interview with the prosecutor, she's absolutely right that sometimes there is those misconceptions. Um, and that can play a large, a large role in why um, boys may not disclose or talk about things that have happened to them. Um, you know, we know that disclosure is a process, and there's a number of reasons, you know, that a child might not disclose um, touching, whether it's you know, fear of being retaliated on by um, their perpetrator or fear of not being believed or fear of judgment by their peers or kind of other members of their community. But we're seeing it happen all the time in kids of both genders. So here's what's happening in my imagination. I imagine that you're in your car, you're in your van, and your kid is with you. You're taking them to practice, and they heard this story somewhere, and they say, what happened on this baseball team? And you got to figure out what you're going to say before they ask that question. So broadly speaking, because I don't need you to address the details of this case, of course, because we don't know them and we don't know the, the children you'd be talking to because different developmental you know, areas and you have different kids at different you know, stages in life. But broadly speaking, what are some of the ways that we should be prepared to talk to our kids about what's inappropriate um, and how and who to tell if something happens. Absolutely. And so really kind of what we know is that beginning at a very young age, it's important for parents to be able to lay a foundation that they're a safe person that their child can come to and talk to about anything. And so part of that is helping educate and kind of teach the child about appropriate boundaries and appropriate touches. Um, 
and helping the child to understand that no one should be touching their body, um, you know, in a way that is not okay with them. Um, teaching them about private parts so that they know um, what those are and what that means. And really, like I said, letting them know that if someone does something that's not okay with them, that's important to tell a grown-up or an adult that can help keep them safe. Um, and so, you know, kind of one of the one of the biggest things is that we hear from kids is, they were afraid to tell because they didn't want to get in trouble. And so it becomes very important for parents or caregivers to give that consistent message that it's safe for their child to talk with them about anything, whether they think that their parent or caregiver might be, might be upset by what they're talking about or even if the child thinks they may have made a mistake or thinks they may be in trouble it's important for parents to let them know that they are never in trouble for sharing about those things because the most important thing is that child's safety and making sure um, that those kind of behaviors can be addressed appropriately. If uh, there is someone listening right now and they heard this conversation and said, oh, that happened to me, it was two years ago, um, it was six months ago, you mentioned disclosure being a process. And... Uh, where do you begin and who do you call if, you know, maybe you're 20 now or maybe you're 18 now? Yeah, so absolutely. There's times when, um, you know, victims don't disclose for years and years. Sometimes victims never disclose. And so the biggest and kind of most important thing would be to go to um, kind of your local law enforcement agency or if, um you know, a child is involved going to child protection services. Um, you know, if there are concerns and, and a victim wants to disclose but needs support, you know, there's certainly um, advocacy resources and, and other um, agencies that, that can provide victim support um, through that disclosure process and kind of law enforcement process as well. But really kind of that's the best place to start is, is with law enforcement so they can open an investigation appropriately. And for parents not asking too many detailed questions is important. Talk about like a forensic interview. What do I need to know? I need to give my child or the child who's coming to me just that feeling of safety. We're going to get through this together, but probably not ask for too many details. Absolutely. Help me understand where the line is there. Yeah, so we know that especially with um, children, like young children, how questions are asked are important, who is asking the questions. Um, we want to be very careful not to ask questions in a way that can lead children down a certain um, direction or to a certain answer. And so really kind of getting that basic information, um, you know, what happened, who, what part of your body. Um, really those basic details, um, even if a child is just disclosing um, that someone has touched their private parts, you know, that's enough for a parent really to go to law enforcement to get further investigation done, um, in which case, you know, law enforcement may ask some basic um, questions to gather facts. Um, and they can refer appropriately for a forensic interview where a child is in a neutral setting 
um, a neutral safe setting and questions can be asked in a developmentally appropriate way to gather that history um, that, that caregivers need to be able to take care of the child and keep them safe. Kelly Wharton is a certified nurse practitioner at Child's Voice. That's a children's advocacy center at Sanford Health. And um, again, local law enforcement, create that foundation of safety with the children in your lives. And uh, we get through this together. Kelly, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, next time you head to the Rapid City Regional Airport, you might see a few bright green lanyards with yellow sunflowers. Well, the sunflower is more than a pretty yellow flower. It is a symbol of the Hidden Disability Sunflower Program. And this airport is the first location in the Dakotas to participate in the program. Megan Johnson is the Marketing, Communications, and Air Service Development Manager at the airport. She's with me from SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital Studio to explain the program. What, Megan, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for helping us spread the word about this program at the airport. So this is not something that you have to apply for or get a diagnosis for. This is you get to, you know, pick up a lanyard. Tell me a little bit about how this program works. Yes. So there's no qualifying list of invisible disabilities um, and passengers don't need to explain why they're wearing the sunflower. They can simply choose to pick one up um, to indicate that they need a little bit more support, help or a little bit more time. Um, the lanyards are available for free, 24 hours a day, on the main floor of the terminal at our parking office. Tell me why you wanted to take the lead in the state to bring this program to the Rapid City Regional Airport. So while we're required to comply with ADA, requ ADA requirements, um, it's sometimes difficult to identify people who need additional assistance. So... These people are ones who maybe don't have the use of assistive equipment, and the more that we understand about non-visible disabilities, the more we can really help to improve the lives of the people who are experiencing them. All right, so if you work at the, at the uh, airport, if you're with the airlines and you see somebody wearing a lanyard, um, what's your next step? What are you going to do? The lanyard simply triggers a question, how can I help you? And because everyone has different needs, there's no one way for staff to deal with each situation, but they can always show kindness and respect. So examples would include walking the guests to their gate or waiting with them at the curb um, or just providing a bottle of water or explaining the services that we offer. For people who are deciding, does this apply to me because maybe they uh, are experiencing cancer treatment yet and they think, you know, is that a disability or they have um, anxiety and depression, is that a disability? Help people self-identify when they would pick up one of these lanyards. Absolutely. Anyone who identifies as having a disability, even if it's temporary, including PTSD, chronic pain, uh, reduced vision or hearing, or autism, um, if you feel like you need additional help while traveling, please pick one up. Um, there's also a variety of products with the green sunflower or the yellow sunflower on the green background, including bracelets and pins for those with sensory issues. And why does it matter? Like, um, let's talk about so travel, because I think sometimes, when we, especially when we talk about people with anxiety and depression or PTSD, um, the idea is, well, you maybe aren't going to... I know a lot of people who don't travel, who, who don't get on the plane, because it's just 
too much. They have a child with autism. Uh, we're not going there. We can't go there. Um, why does it matter to have this one small way to remove an obstacle or a barrier? Yeah, so the CDC says that um, around one in four adults in the USA have some type of disability. So st statistically, you're more likely to come across someone with a hidden disability than you are with someone who's using an assistive device. We really want to make the travel experience as easy for those people as we possibly can. We offer services like visual paging and audio paging, but um, you know it, it's hard to identify that person and provide the help that our staff wants to if we don't know that they have a disability. Yeah, we're going to talk more about this in a, a few moments, but for now, Megan Johnson with the Rapid City Regional Airport, thank you so much for helping us understand the Hidden Disabilities Sunflower Program. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, according to the CDC, about one in four South Dakotans has a disability. We'll say that again. One in four. That is a lot of people. In fact, you probably work with somebody who has a disability, hidden or otherwise, at your current job. So let's talk about that. How do workplaces become more accessible for everyone? Cole Euchre is the executive director of Disability Rights South Dakota, and he's with me now on the phone. Cole, welcome. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks very much for having me. It's a really exciting opportunity. It can be difficult enough if you have an assisted device or you need a ramp or you need an automatic opening door at your workplace. But now let's talk about the vast array of disabilities, hidden and otherwise, that workers um, deal with. Where do you want to begin this conversation? Um, I think we kind of began it. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that uh, people that you may work with uh, may have a disability and you don't realize it, and, and that's fine. Um, there's, there's hidden disabilities. There's, there's ones that you can perceive visually. Uh, there's ones that um, are known and unknown. So the important thing is that uh, we make sure that our workplaces are accessible and um, everybody is, has the ability to work. So, so many people don't talk about what their disability is because they're afraid of getting judged or getting left out of a big project or even getting fired. So what are some of the best practices for if you are an employee and you have a disability, you need to have the conversation with whom and when? Yeah, absolutely. So what I usually tell people is that Disclosure of a disability is a really personal topic and that um, I advise people to only disclose once they feel that it's necessary to let somebody know, whether it be their supervisor or their boss or an HR personnel. Look at your uh, employer's policies to see how that uh, process would work. But if you're somebody that feels like you would benefit from an accommodation in the workplace, that would be a good time to disclose that you're a person with a disability. Be prepared in case they ask for some sort of documentation showing that so that you can go to your employer and ask for whatever assistance that might be beneficial to you so that you can do your job effectively. What kind of documentation matters? What kind of documentation has value? Any sort of provider that uh, you see or um, whether it be a medical provider, a mental health provider, Somebody that assists you 
in relation to your um, disability um, that can just indicate that you have a diagnosis of a particular disability and that you would benefit from um, a workplace accommodation. It doesn't really have to be any more specific or in-depth than that, just to show your employer that you would qualify for protections under, for example, Title I of the ADA, Section 504 of the Rehab Act, or various statutes within South Dakota law. So let's talk about what a reasonable accommodation is. I was looking on a website that sort of listed for employers different things that you might provide an employee who has a you know different level of disability. And it was fascinating because a lot of them were fairly simple in some ways. What kind of accommodations might help someone who is struggling? Maybe just an yeah, example, because that's a big, broad question, right? But <laughs> yeah, for example. For example, uh, uh, an ergonomic keyboard or uh, changing perhaps um, hours of, of work. It doesn't have to necessarily be a physical change to the work environment. It can be the way the person does their work, the hours in which they do their work. Perhaps certain job duties may be transferred from one employee to another, replacing that duty with something else that that individual can do themselves. So the, the, the short answer and perhaps less satisfying one is that uh, job accommodations can vary broadly based on the needs of the person for whom you're providing the accommodation. Uh, lists of accommodations are nice to kind of get a general sense of what kind of things you can look at, but really you should look at the individual and their needs. See what it is that is creating the barrier for them to be as effective in work as they could be, and see what sort of reasonable options can be evaluated and discussed through the interactive process that can help that person uh, not only be effective, but excel and, uh, and, and to help your business grow. Talk a little bit to the coworkers now. And, you know, you have a team member and that team member says, you know, I this is a disability I have. I'm going to request some accommodations. And how can coworkers be supportive of their teammates that uh, benefits the entire team? I think that coworkers, you know, play a big role in the, the office place. Um, certainly, um, there may be opportunities for a coworker to, again, fill in on some of the duties that might be more difficult for somebody who, let's say, has a physical disability and can't do the lifting on, uh, that a particular job might require. So that person can fill in and help with that. Um, and then, in turn, the, the other person can take over some duty to compensate that, that work that's being done, actual, extra work that's being done. But I think the important thing is to remember that in any workplace, that uh, typically those those places, everyone works as a team. And um, every team member adds their own value and, um, and, and effect upon the tapestry of that place. And yeah. so helping to support one another is probably the best thing that as a supervisor, as a boss myself, that I can ask for from my uh, my team here at Disability Rights. Yeah. If there is um, a feeling that your request is not being taken seriously or those conversations aren't going very well, you're concerned about your job, what re 
recourse do you have? What should you do next if it's not? I mean, we're kind of laying this out as if everybody works in a, in a perfect environment and every boss is perfectly trained and the human resources department functions at a high level. And, uh, you know, you might be at a, a, a small business, you might be at a family business. And uh, what kind of recourse do you have if things aren't going so well to sort of take the next step and say, uh, we need to take this more seriously than we're taking it? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So the first thing that I always uh, tell people is uh, to make sure you familiarize yourself with policies regarding uh, these these um, protocols. Um, how in your business is are these things handled? If there are such policies, make sure that you're following them. Uh, anything that you do, if things seem like they're not quite going as smoothly as you'd like to do, is try to document the process in writing. So rather than ask verbally for to, to sit down and have an account discussion about reasonable accommodations, uh, ask make that request in writing in some sort. Mm -hmm. I like paper. I like writing it down. I like putting a signature on there. Even if you have to put it in an envelope and mail it, anything like that typically initiates a more formalized process. It also creates a paper trail for your requests to, um, to pursue those processes. Yeah. Uh, and then if all else fails, if for whatever reason things aren't going well and you need you feel as though you need to make a report, the South Dakota Department of Labor Division of Human Rights would be a good place to start to discuss your rights under South Dakota and federal law um, in your, in your re resources. Also, if anyone would um, like to discuss the rights, they can call my agency, Disability Rights South Dakota, Mm -hmm. uh, at no cost, and we can discuss what, in your case, um, might be available to you. What do you have to disclose when you're applying for a job? As far as disability, you don't have to disclose any disability upon application of a job. All right. And I have to ask this question for the bosses out there, the coworkers. Um, if you're thinking that this is not a legitimate request, if you think somebody is doing something and they're just not up to the task of doing the job that they have, where do you begin with ensuring that you're being fair to people, but that you're also not just, you know, I guess what is an unreasonable accommodation is the question I'm really asking. What do you not have oh, to sure. accommodate? Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a few there's a test out there about what makes a, a, an accommodation reasonable or unreasonable. Uh, for an accommodation to be reasonable, it um, for it to be unreasonable, I'm sorry, it would have to be an undue burden upon the uh, the employer. Typically, that means that it costs a lot of money, an unreasonable amount of money, uh, or it could be a fundamental alteration of the job. So, if you look at the essential functions of a job description, and one of those essential functions. Um, would be frustrated in such a way that if a person couldn't do it, they really couldn't do the job, mm -hmm. then that would be an unreasonable accommodation. So the classic, classic example is always a firefighter, an individual who applies to be a firefighter but says that they cannot um, drag a hose or climb a ladder. Mm -hmm. Those are essential functions of the job, typically, within a fire department, and they would be frustrated by those accommodations. Yeah. And so that would be an unreasonable accommodation. But the, the important part to remember is that um, m many times 
accommodations can be identified through the interactive process that are reasonable that maybe aren't the initial request that um, maybe their initial request would be deemed unreasonable or too difficult or an undue burden, whereas there would be an alternative accommodation that could meet that person's needs. It's all about sitting down and talking it out. That's the key. Yeah. Cole Euchre, Executive Director of Disability Rights, South Dakota. Thank you so much for helping us understand this more deeply today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's take a moment now to celebrate 16 national champions. The Dakota Alliance Soccer Club 17 and under girls team took the U.S. Youth Soccer National Crown in July. They're the first from South Dakota to do so, but in some ways it was just another day on the field for a team that loves to play together. SDPB's Jordan Henderson spoke with Coach Gabe Wortman. I told them I was really proud of them, whatever happened. I told them, you know, whatever they did, you know, as long as they gave everything they had, they wouldn't disappoint me, they wouldn't disappoint mom and dad. And then, again, it's the same thing they've done since they were five, six years old. It's just we're in Orlando doing it for, for this thing. That's all it is. It's just, it's just us going out and playing soccer. And it had been a goal, and it, it's always been a goal, but it, it for so long was, I mean, it, it just it was unobtainable. We couldn't, there was anything we were going to do about it. And then to have it happen was to, to hit, see it hit the back of the net and to go, and, and the, it took a second to kind of mentally process and go, we're national champions. see Abby Flanagan hit the back of the net along with scenes from the rest of the game and the welcome home parade head to our website sdpb.org sports we'll take a break when we come back we'll talk about tourists who sometimes need services and the counties who need ways to pay for those services during the height of tourist season CJ Keen has that story up next on listener supported SDPB radio To In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. South Dakota is at the peak of tourism season. Bikers, hikers, and hunters bring in millions of dollars to the state each year through sales tax revenue. Inevitably, some visitors will require services from counties that don't receive any of those tax dollars. And that is raising questions about how to better support resource-strained counties. SDPB's C.J. Keene reports. Today marks that time of year again. Hundreds of thousands of motorcyclists are headed to the Sturgis Rally, ready to cross one of the world's biggest parties off their bucket list. Businesses are eager to accept the fat wallets of road trippers. However, there are costs associated with the rally and tourism season more broadly costs that often fall onto the shoulders of county government. 
State Senator Helene Duhamel is on a legislative study committee on county funding and services. The Rapid City Republican says much of the debate orbits the dreaded T-word, taxes. For the past several years, enabling legislation to allow counties to have a sales tax has failed. We also were under the impression that the governor would oppose any tax increase on her watch. It just seems like we have hit the point where we have to look at other options for counties if we're not going to give them another funding source. Tourism brings hundreds of millions of dollars to the state each year, but many county services, think ambulances, search and rescue, and the sheriff's department, don't see a cent of that sales tax revenue. Du Hamill, who works as the spokesperson for the Pennington County Sheriff's Department, says counties big and small are feeling it. We are nervous about what the future looks like. All the counties around here have incarceration issues. We've been asked if we would handle their incarceration needs. We'd love to. There's no room at the inn. As soon as somebody gets arrested, the county is on the line. Cha-ching, cha-ching. The public defender, the court costs, the prosecutor. It goes on and on. Duhamel says the legislative study is assessing what she describes as unfunded mandates that have been forced onto counties. They're also considering other recommendations, like letting individual counties vote on a sales tax or changing how liquor taxes are distributed. Until that time comes, though, Duhamel says property owners are saddled with the bill. Oh, it's huge. When the nice weather comes, summer and fall, tourists come here. But by not having enabling legislation, by not having a sales tax, all of the property owners are paying for the privilege of hosting these hundreds of thousands of people. And that's no exaggeration. Sturgis rally officials expect as many as 450,000 people this year. And that's just 10 days of the summer. Duhamel says Sturgis is a clear case of how challenges domino off of one another. Because you have a lot more traffic, you have people who are not from the area having difficulty navigating the terrain. We have a lot more accidents, a lot more enforcement, a lot more people getting lost in our parks and our forests. All that stuff adds to the burden of what we do day in, day out. It just, it's multiplied. Many of those calls will eventually require boots on the ground, and some of the responders are not even paid to help. For example, the Custer County Ambulance Service. Director Ruth Earhart says their mixed volunteered salary force considers this the busy season. I think I can say fairly confidently that we manage all of our calls, whether it's tourist-related or local. You know, we, we typically run 100-plus calls um, through the summer months per month versus 60 to 70 calls during the other times of the year. And when events like the rally come around, Earhart says it becomes a management game. It can be 10 days of chaos, but we, we, try to, we try to coordinate it to the best of our ability. In a similar situation is Custer County Search and Rescue, a wholly volunteer force. Director Sam Smolniski, who earns his living as an EMT, says they run a tight ship. The people that go out and perform those rescues are doing it voluntarily out of the goodness of their heart. And so that's able for us to keep costs extremely low. Um, you know, the operation we're running here, if that was you know, a paid thing, it, it wouldn't function. That means if you get lost in Custer County, an unpaid force of about 50 people who each have careers and families are on call 24-7 to save you. Smolniski says a fundraising group helps them foot the bill for gear that's essential for volunteers but outside the budget. 
Essential rescue equipment and off-road capable vehicles can turn a valley in the middle of nowhere into an extraction point or a medical clinic, but it's paid for by the goodwill of donors. Smolniski says this kind of fundraising and volunteerism, while meaningful, can only go so far. The reality is we know there's always a, seems like a shorting on funding and budgeting, and we're sitting pretty good right now, but we've seen such a drastic increase in the last five years. Our calls have doubled. Um, the amount of volunteer hours we put in is almost doubling. With every service feeling the squeeze, law enforcement is no exception. Custer County Sheriff Marty McHaley says everyone has to step up and respond to more calls every single year. It is extremely busy during the summer months. I've been here since 2005, um, so I've been around here a while, and it's kind of just become the normal for us <laughs> that we know we're going to have to work harder and work longer hours. And with no community police departments in the entire county, that means 14 officers cover everyone with an area of more than 1,500 square miles. The next meeting of the County Funding and Services Summer Study Group is scheduled for mid-August. Recommendations from that group could potentially become bills in the next legislative session. I'm SDPB's CJ Keen in Rapid City. Sioux Falls, South Dakota is home to the largest population of Kunama people in the United States. That's an ethnic group originally from Eritrea. They're one of the smallest ethnic communities in their country. Well, to recognize and celebrate this population, Levitt at the Falls will host a special African Music Day. That includes two headlining African artists and a variety of musical performances throughout the day this Saturday. African Music Day and other Kunama cultural festivities happening throughout the week were organized by a local nonprofit, and Moses Idris is co-founder of the nonprofit Kobabala Farda Kunamasi and a board member of Levitt at the Falls. Moses is with me on the phone. Moses, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tell me a little bit about the music first. Why is music important this Saturday? Yeah. So music for everybody is uh, music is healing. Music is a way to bring people together. And it's just a fun way to connect with more people. So uh, music has been, uh, especially traditional music, has been uh, a big part of Kunama people. And that's how we celebrate each other. That's how uh, we connect with each other. And we usually do it just at weddings and just special events. But our culture, we try to stay in our culture, and then our culture is not known more, in, especially in the seafolk or even in the United States. So this is a, a way that we can show our culture and our people through music, and that's why we were uh, collaborating with the Levitt to kind of showcase that and just invite more people to come and connect with more people. It's a big stage, and therefore it can be a big party. Tell me a little bit about the importance of having a gathering place for this community that's so visible and joyful. Yeah, and... Uh, a uh, little history about the Kunama people, uh, like you mentioned, they're the native people of Eritrea, and that they're the, they're one of the smallest uh, group. And uh, 
uh, there's been a lot of uh, challenges in terms of wars and stuff. So, like, a lot of Punaba people are se- uh, separated uh, from their families or just uh, from the country. And uh, and it's every time we have uh, just moments that we can connect and celebrate each other through music or art, it's a great way. And like I said earlier, we usually used to do it uh, in weddings. But this is a big stage, like you said, and this is we have uh, international Kunama musician coming, mm-hmm. and we are uh, also uh, bringing uh, our local musicians from Hippos and from Des Moines, uh, yeah, Des Moines, Iowa. So it's definitely going to be a fun night, and uh, it's going to be really special for our Kunama people and also for people in the area to come and just be part of it. Now, also on August 6th at the Multicultural Center Coliseum on Main Avenue in Sioux Falls, there is a cultural and history celebration with a fashion show and poetry and uh, competitions. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, the whole event has been, uh, the whole festival has been happening since uh, Wednesday, but Soccer is a big part of our culture, so uh, the last two days and today and tomorrow morning has been just a uh, soccer aspect of things, and Saturday night is going to be the Levitt uh, Le- uh, Falls uh, event. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on sun- Sunday, we have the, uh, all the other arts and competitions, and that's a way that we can share our culture, especially at the events happening on uh, Sunday. That's another way that we can show our culture and try to like teach our children uh, the way to uh, kind of embrace their culture and learn more about their culture. Uh, but there's a lot of talent, whether if it's music, whether if it's poetry, whether if it's just singing. Uh, there's a lot of talent, so we're trying to create opportunities or platform that people can just share their talent and. Uh, uh, we can encourage them to grow, and someday they can use that talent to just serve their community. So that's our hope, and that's what our nonprofit stands for. And our nonprofit translates into a platform for uh, entertainment and culture. So mm. that's what we're trying to do. And I probably pronounced that wrong. So tell us the name of your nonprofit, please, the right way. I think you did pretty good. Uh, <laughs> But it's uh, <laughs> yeah, I was impressed. <laughs> it's uh, it's called Kobabala Farda Kunamasi. So we try to say it uh, slower, uh. but uh, you did pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you mentioned you know you mentioned the sadness and the the you know, war and uh, uh, traveling to America, finding a way to South Dakota, separation of families, and what is the potential? you know, power of bringing people together, especially young people, to say, this is who you are, this is your culture, and it matters here in this place, too. Talk about that for me, please. Yeah, and uh, that's a really good question, and thank you for asking that. And uh, I was actually sharing a little bit about this uh, yesterday because we do some Facebook Live, and uh, uh, like I said uh, uh, earlier, we had been doing a, a soccer uh, tournament uh, this past few days. And then uh, yesterday, uh, we had a lot of our soccer uh, 
uh, youth uh, teams, and also we had the musicians, and we had uh, some of the people who were organizing this uh, festival, and we were just there and just chilling and get, uh, just uh, celebrating each other and being together. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what, I, what we're trying to create uh, in, uh, in this festival or even in our community is that we are here to support each other. So if you're, if you're a youth or an adult that's trying to grow in your own way in terms of if you're an athlete, if you're an artist, if you're uh, a community leader, if you're a teacher, uh, we want to celebrate you and we want to encourage you to keep growing in that and to uh, learn more about your culture so you can serve your community. So like you said, we're trying to teach our youth that. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not saying that you're, uh, one is better than that, than the other, but if somebody is doing better, we won't be able to encourage them as a community. So that's what we're trying to do for our youth. Moses, thank you for joining us today. That soccer is at Yankton Trails Park. The Levitt Shell yeah. on Saturday starts at 6 o'clock, and then the cultural events on Sunday begin at 1230 when the doors open. Thank you for your time. Yeah. yeah. Thank you to producers Ellen Kester and Ari Youngeman. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. We thank you for listening. Have a great weekend.